Yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back to yet to our last week, our last Monday in November. It's hard to believe that 2017 is almost gone. And we've got three more shows in December before uh, Christmas and New Year's. And then we're back to start our fourth year on Adrenaline Radio. So that's exciting. Uh, we've got great guests all through the month of December for you today. An incredible show today. I am so thrilled. Jacob, Director Jacob Kornbluth is back with us today. Um, our regular listeners may remember that Jacob was on earlier this year with his brother Josh to talk about their comedy, Love and Taxes. Of course, Jacob is also known for his documentary work, most notably with Robert Reich, former U.S. Labor Secretary to Bill Clinton, uh, and now one of our mo- one of the most vocal advocates of enlightening and educating the public on economic issues. Uh, he's a professor at Berkeley. Uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bob and Jacob several years ago with their first film together, Inequality for All. Now the two are back with Saving Capitalism. It is it's available on Netflix uh, as of the twenty first. Some of you may have seen it over the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, Once again, things are laid out very clearly. We get a great history. uh, And it's just another great venture between Jacob and Bob. Um, They have been, since Inequality for All, they've been doing a series of short films uh, that we're going to, I want to talk to Jacob about as well, little three to four minute shorts, explaining various components and issues involving the economy today and where we're at, where we're going, and what needs to happen if we want to see any change. So I'm very thrilled to have Jacob back with us at the midpoint of the show. But before then, you know, last week, we heard a little bit about Coco. This weekend, you all got to see it, made it the number one film at the box office. Um, I am so thrilled to see that. I mean, this truly is, it is an absolute it is a wonder, a, a, kaleido, a kaleidoscopic explosion of color and culture. It is the best animated film of the year. It is the best film in Pixar's arsenal. Uh, they have just surpassed themselves every way, shape, and form with this film. Uh, most notably thanks to production designer Harley Jessup and also lighting designer Danielle Feinberg. film is directed by Lee Unkrich, uh, co-directed by Adrian Molina, who also was a writer. Uh, and as many of you know, I sat down and spoke with Lee and Adrian and one of the film's producers, Darla Anderson, to talk about some of the... Some of the in, components that make up the wonder that is Coco. Uh, Last week, you got to hear a little bit as they talked about the music, which is so key, so important. And Academy voters, remember me, original song, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, the team that gave us Let It Go with Frozen. Remember me is just as memorable, be it in English or in Spanish. Uh, so I fully expect to see that garner an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song come Oscars. Everything on the level of Coco is award-worthy with Guild Awards, with Animation Awards. And for my money, as I have said repeatedly since I first saw the film, for my money, this film is a contender for an actual Best Picture nomination in addition to Best Animated Feature. Uh, Whether that will happen, I don't know. But when you look at the component parts of a film, from voice cast or performance to scripting to your production design to your lighting design, here you have the component of animation, costuming, 
you know, a lot of people don't don't realize or recognize that in animation film, all of this gets created uh, by way of models and not just in a computer. There is actual physical, tangible construction going on in order to create the animation that we see. Um, so it's it is a truly it is a wonder, and it is the best thing to come uh, that Pixar has ever done. Um, so last week I briefed you on skeletons. Skeletons are a huge part of Coco, as we all have seen for those that went to the theater this weekend. But these aren't your typical skeletons. Skeletons, though, have a very important part in the history of Disney, going back to the days of Silly Symphonies and uh, the skeleton dance of three skeletons that everybody manages to pull up on YouTube come Halloween. Well, Disney has taken the art of the skeleton and with the animators on Coco, including one, I have to give her a shout-out, Daniela Streleva, who did the design for Mama Imelda and Frida in addition to many of the other skeletons. But those, she was the primary animator and designer on those two skeletons in particular. And, and uh, Mama Imelda is a force to be reckoned with in the film, I assure you, if you haven't seen it. But let's take a look now. Let's take a listen now to hear what Lee and Darla and Adrian had to say about the skeleton designing the skeletons for Coco. This is an explosion of coming. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> an explosion of color and culture. Uh, this is something we've never seen. And I've got to say, as fantastic as the good dinosaur was, and the work that was done with lighting, and Harley, what Harley Jessup did with production design. Danielle here in Harley, yes. out of this world. This is, I've never seen anything like it. If there was an Oscar category for production design for animation for Harley, <laughs> I'd be handing him an Oscar. Oh. I wish he could get into the normal production design yeah. category. Oh. I don't think it'll ever happen, but uh, he deserves it. I mean, it's a huge amount of work. He did an amazing job. Everything on this film. But I've got to talk to you more about the technical aspects of this film. Because you're dealing with a lot of new things. You take the render man to a new level with the light reflection and refraction and, and of course, your particle light. That It's a whole new ball game with particle light, and you really make the most of it as a storytelling tool. But also manipulating skeletons. I mean, Disney, we go all the way back. Only before Walt Disney, Melias had done the one short with skeletons, but... This is a hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I mean, we did. We knew it was going to be a big challenge for us on a lot of fronts, um, and so we started by doing a survey of everything that had been done with animated skeletons in the history of cinema. Everything from those early shorts, uh, you know, the early Abai Works animated Disney short, um, Jason uh, to yeah, to Ray Harryhausen's animation, to Tim Burton's animated work, and. That was to make sure that we carved out our own unique, specific place design-wise mm -hmm. that was different from what anyone had done. Um, but we had one goal that maybe was different on this film than anyone has, which is we wanted our skeletons to be appealing. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't going for ghoulish or frightening. We, in our minds, they were just characters. They were people that were once living people. And so we didn't want their skeletonness to be off-putting at all. Um, and so we made a lot of choices early on, um, like giving them eyeballs, which we thought would kind of make it easier for the audience to connect with them on a soulful level. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time that we were trying to keep them more like real people, we also wanted to find ways to embrace the entertainment potential mm -hmm. of skeletons that could be falling apart all the time and having to put themselves back together. And um, There were a lot of tests done early on to just kind of figure out what that visual vocabulary mm -hmm. was going to be for the skeletons. I mean, it's, it's fabulous. And you have the skeleton motif throughout the land of the dead. I'm even looking at the flooring, at mm -hmm. the street, the cobblestones, mm -hmm. and it looks like you've got femurs and, and tibias mm -hmm. yeah. in there. I mean, the minutia, the attention to detail is fabulous. That was important to Lee from early on. He, he wanted uh, skeleton skull references. Kind well, of I like the idea of being yeah. subtle with it, like yeah. the, mm -hmm. the kind of almost like accidental skeletons and skulls that are mm -hmm. formed when you're at a certain angle, looking at scenes. Um, and the light bulb. Yeah, just even like a, a light bulb. The light bulbs in the Land of the Dead, I realized light bulbs kind of look like a skull shape. Mm -hmm. So we embraced them by doing filaments inside that kind of enhance the feeling of a skull face. Mm -hmm. um, 
I just didn't want cartoony skeleton right. land. I wanted it to be rooted in a in a kind of relatable, very Mexican feeling, mm-hmm. and uh, um, but then acknowledge that it is a land of the dead. So what can we do to make it unique and entertaining? And entertaining it is indeed. If you haven't seen Coco already, I can't encourage you enough. Um, take tissues. Take tissues. Uh, but to see this wonderful cultural experience uh, explode and, and really broken down for those of us that aren't familiar with it. Uh, and we learn about the land of the dead and the Alfredas and the offerings uh, on the one night of the year when the souls can pass over. And to see all of this in this, as I said, kaleidoscope of color. Uh, it is truly, truly beautiful. The Marigold Bridge with all these individual petals that are constructed with each one of the petals lit from underneath with this new technique of particle light is absolutely outstanding. And using that, the the particle light also, as you heard Lee talking about, it allowed them to do more with the skeleton motif in addition to really working on creating the skeleton uh, and giving it texture and life. Um, so there we have skeletons. Uh, we've got more, I've got more on Coco that uh, you'll be able to find at BehindTheLensOnline.net. But right now, let's shift some gears. Uh, Wonderstruck. Uh, several weeks ago, you heard my exclusive interview with cinematographer Ed Lockman, one of the finest cin- uh, cinematographic jobs of the year, uh, bringing together a meld of black and white and color, uh, the sound design on the film, Todd Haynes, uh, as a director, has created another masterful work uh, where part of the film is shot very much like a silent film. The present day in the 1970s is focuses on a young boy who loses his hearing, which ties in with the heroine in the black and white uh, segment of the film uh, going back decades who is deaf. Uh, So, I mean, it just all comes together. But when you have a situation like that, where you have part of your film silent, then you have a young boy who's deaf in a a sonic world, um, music is your key component. Well, for the music on Wonderstruck, none other than composer Carter Burwell. Carter is a frequent collaborator with director Todd Haynes. Uh, his scoring with Carol two years ago was beautiful. And this year, Carter's got a trifecta going. He's got Wonderstruck. He's got Goodbye Christopher Columbus that he scored for Simon Curtis and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri for director Martin McDonough, Reitner and director Martin McDonough. So I had a chance to sit down with Carter the day before Wonderstruck opened in Los Angeles and talk to him about all three films, even though I had not seen three billboards at that point, which has since been rectified, by the way. So take a listen to my interview with Carter Burwell. Not only do you have Wonderstruck, but you have Goodbye Christopher Robin. Mm-hmm. And you have three billboards. <laughs> Goodbye Christopher Robin. Exquisite. Whimsical. Exquisite. I love it. Great. Wonderstruck. I just, I'm enchanted by the score. I mean, I am, and then I listened to, Jeff was kind enough to send me, because I haven't seen, I'm not seeing three billboards until the 25th. Okay. So he sent me the score, the themes, mm-hmm. so I could hear them. Totally different. It's pretty different. And you'll see the film is pretty different. It's pretty different. Yeah. Well, it's Martin, who, it's Martin's film, so. I have to say, Carter, this is so beautiful what you have constructed with each of them but you know with Wonderstruck this is a very unique film because of the very nature of it with the two time periods and the fact that ultimately underlying is the fact that in Rose's time not only is this silent film but she's deaf right and then we face the same thing with Ben but in a hearing world because in a silent film world, we're not hearing anything, which makes music even more important. How did you approach scoring 
this film, when you got this, you got the phone call from Todd and you got the script, how did you approach this? Because as I listen to, there's a very ethereal quality to this score. Your silent whispers, it's very melodic with bells. Um, you've got the daughter of the storm is just traditional silent film, heavy organ, <laughs> fabulous. But then throughout other excerpts, you have chimes and triangles, it sounds like, and a couple little instant snare drums. And they're all very identifiable as to who we're with and what we're doing. So I'm curious how you, can, how you approach this. And then once you have the score, how you develop the orchestrations for this with the very specific instrumentation. Well, so given the script, where it was, you know, obvious that uh, large sections of the film were completely silent. Not just, not only did they not have dialogue, but they don't even have sound effects. They don't even right. have the sound of a room. So it was uh, just obvious that there would be a great deal of music. And uh, so Todd and I began talking about what that music's going to do um, well before he shot the film. Mm-hmm. We, we we would talk about once a week, get on the phone, just throw out more ideas. Should do it could do this, it could do that. Should it do that? You know, what does the music comment on the deafness? To what extent does the music comment on the, the different time periods? Um, is the music more about like distinguishing between the characters, or more about bringing them together? We you know talk about a lot of these things. In the end, you know, I, I usually find those conversations. I really enjoy those conversations, but. Uh, it's only when you actually have the film and it's only when you actually start writing music that it all really means anything. Um, so for Wonderstruck, I actually began somewhere around the middle of the movie. I began with the scene where they're in the Museum of Natural History and the, they're looking at the dioramas. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's when the characters from both time periods come together. Right. And I wanted to see if I had something that could really work for all of them um, together. And uh, I quickly noticed that percussion worked, uh, that marimba and um, you know, glockenspiel, you say okay. triangle. It was either a xylophone or a glockenspiel <laughs> that I was hearing in here, and I wasn't sure which. It's um, glockenspiel, well, there's all sorts of things. There's also a percussion instrument called allophone, but there's true, there's no xylophone, but there's vibraphone, all, you know, a large mm-hmm. number of, of percussion instruments. You know, it seemed right. I can now, looking back, analyze the various reasons that I think it's 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 right. Um, you know, first one thing, it just seems childlike. There's mm-hmm. a sense of wonder, but also these are the kind of instruments that you encounter, like in any kindergarten classroom. You'll yeah. see wood blocks and sandpaper and triangle and things like that. Um, uh, but you know, another reason now that I look look back on on it and watch the film, another reason why it works so well, I think, is that it. They're not sentimental instruments. You with with those instruments playing the lead lines. Mm-hmm. I never had to worry about falling into sentimentality. You know, they um, uh, and that's great because these kids they don't either. These kids are like you know they they suffer a terrible loss and terrible setbacks. All you know, <laughs> frankly, through from all through the movie until the very end. Um, but uh, they are they don't sentimentalize themselves. They they you know they're always problem solving and. You know, um, so the percussion, I think, also worked for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I notice you also bring much of that same instrumentation into City and the Stars at the very right. end of the film, where we now have the adult Rose and the young Ben. Right. And, of course, Jaden. Uh, so right, yes. <laughs> this musicality that you have come up with, is ju- it is. It is enchanting. That is, that is the word for this. Oh, thank you. And it really makes you feel the wonder of what both of these kids are experiencing on two totally different levels. It's, you know, the film, uh, you know, I think for any composer, you know, this film is uh, an amazing opportunity. Also, big, big responsibility. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, an amazing opportunity. And uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to um, be given a canvas like that. Now, when you are composing, especially in a situation like this one, is it more with getting the melody to begin with and then worrying about the instrumentation or an orchestration, or 
are you thinking immediately of, okay, I want a sound of a glockenspiel. I want a sound of chimes. That's a good question. For me, um, I begin with um, melody and harmony and then go on to orchestration. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, a lot of times in film, for a variety of reasons, people will work with, a composer will work with an orchestrator, um, and, and I have as well. But it was, I don't know, I just felt that this film was so personal for me and um, that I really, and that also the instrumentation, those choices would be so important that I, you know, orchestrated this one myself um, and didn't let anyone help me. Uh, but that's, um, that takes a certain amount of time. But I did think that those, in this case, those choices are just so particular and like deciding when this moment is that, mm-hmm. you know, the marimba, is that the allophone? I mean, it's certain, to a certain extent, it's true in any film, um, but uh, I felt in this case um, it was especially true. But for myself, the, um, you know, the basically melody, harmony, things like that come first, and then, um, and then I'll begin working on the orchestrations mm-hmm. after that. But I have to say, your, instru- your selection of instrumentation is as unique and eclectic as each of the exhibits within the museum <laughs> and right. each of the little toys and things that Ben has in his bedroom as a, as a collector, as his mother calls him. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd like to think, for one thing, if you're going to have 80 minutes of music in the movie, you have to have a wide <laughs> variety. You have to be able to, you know, keep it moving around, keep it, mm-hmm. keep it fresh so that you can't just, you know can't sit on one melody and it can't sit on one set of instruments either it has to be constantly moving mm-hmm. um, so it but which makes it a little bit as you say like a museum collection it has mm-hmm. to be, it can't just be this one thing there have to be you have to be able to walk around and um, experience a yeah. sort of variety it makes a film very sensory <laughs> you know That's even good. though we have a silent film and we have two deaf children it's totally auditory it's a complete sensory experience no, that's great. Thank From you. the sonic standpoint, and I just love that. But then I take a look at a film like Goodbye, Christopher Robin, which is more traditional in the terms of sweeping. Right, it is. But then you also have some very distinctive, again, instrumentation in there. You take a look at, you know, Bear Hunt, and, you know, that's darker and it's more booming. You know, like they're going after a big, huge bear instead of a tiny little, little. But, you know, then you have balloon escape, which is very wafting. And something that I noticed you did, you have a specific theme from while we were young. And that comes back in, or when we were young, and that pops up within other, within other melodies that are popping up throughout the film. Yeah, that's sort of the, the I mean, that theme is... That's you know that's the first book that has um, Winnie the Pooh in it, and so that theme is basically that. It's the, mm-hmm. the theme for the the books and their success, and then it will later be the theme for the the burden of that success. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Um, I think one of the, in in Christopher Robin, one of the interesting things when we're talking about themes is that there's a um, I think the the, the piece is called Drawing Pooh, but it's it's the scene in which. Uh, A. Mill has decided he's going to write one of my favorites. Okay. I made notes of my favorite ones. Okay, it sounds so, like you have some harp in there. It's very mm-hmm. lilting and, and very whimsical. Well, so it's also and melodically that's that's the you know you know the, that's when it all comes together and that's mm-hmm. sort of like the you know, a big moment. That's when they be, you know um, they start drawing Winnie the Pooh, start writing this, the the book, and you realize. That's what's going on, but it happens you know, about halfway into the film, and um, uh, we made this decision, Simon and I, that we wouldn't state that theme until then. Like that's sort of, in a way, the main theme of the movie. But we wouldn't wouldn't state it until you're in the middle of the movie, which is, you know, it, there's a logic to it, but it's also a little strange. Uh, most films, even, you know, even at the beginning, they'd have yeah. some, so they'd in you know, a little sort of overture, you'd, you'd say something about it, but. We felt it was important that when Winnie finally makes his appearance as a character, that and he that everything changes, and so mm-hmm. we just withheld that uh, sort of the main theme of the movie until you were halfway through. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, it's like when I listen to when we were young, it feels like somebody's skipping. <laughs> no matter where it pops up within the score, 
I immediately, it feels like someone is skipping. <laughs> and it is just so enchanting. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, both of these films, I can honestly say these are my two favorite scores of the year. Wow. Out of all the scores I've heard all year, <laughs> these are my two favorites. Oh, thank you. Because the emotionality that goes into each of them, it really resonates and captures each each specific film. And the one, Wonderstruck, that's not an easy one to capture with emotionality. Right. No, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who we all know we're going to cry. That was not an easy job. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Wonderstruck is, um, there's a lot in there. So many different themes. And also these, like, you know, emotionally um, almost overwhelming moments. But, you know, a lot of times when the emotion is in the film is most overwhelming is when the music actually kind of pulls back and gets mm-hmm. extremely um, sort of restrained. Because uh, we really, partly because it's kids... I think Todd and I just really didn't want it to feel like the music was, you know, the thing that was making you cry. We wanted it to be the restraint was making you cry. Mm-hmm. Like when you see Julianne Moore's character, she doesn't talk, and you know, um, there's so much uh, going on, and but she, you know, she can't say it. It's it's that you know that it should be you know pushing you to tears, not the not music yeah. tugging at at you. Yeah, and same thing with Goodbye Christopher Robin. That just the story itself. I mean. You need five boxes of tissues to get through that movie. Um, you know, it's just hands yeah. down. But then your score comes on top of that. And it's just like, okay, maybe we better have a six box just to be sure. But then I listen to all of these excerpts from three billboards outside Ebbing. Totally and completely different. Which, everything of yours is so distinctive. Like what you did for the founder last year for John Lee. Mm-hmm. I mean, wonderful. But, you know, that had very strong personalities, a very strong business subject. Right. So your tones were very, very different. I now cannot wait to see Three Billboards. Because I'm listening to this, I'm hearing a lot of mandolin right. and guitar. Mm-hmm. Very Spanish influenced, Mexican influenced in here with all of these songs. Uh, it, it just, and then you actually have some actual vocal tracks interspersed in there. I noticed you've got Joan Baez, right? Yes, yeah. and then you've got um, the last rose of the last rose of summer, right? Done in operatic. Yeah, it's uh, from an opera um, called Martha by a, so it's a, an Irish tune, an Irish mm-hmm. poem, but but set by a German uh, composer. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the one thing that sounds very Irish out of what I listen to. Right, yes. How do you approach a film like that? And knowing Martin and his darker and more sarcastic tones, shall we say? It's fair, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to describe Martin. Mm-hmm. How do you approach something like that? You're not dealing with children, which is its own special kind of I know. ideology. And you know, I, the film uh, is very uh, is very dark, but you know, it's as you say, Martin has sarcastic tones, um, and there's a, a great deal of dark humor in this movie. But it's also very um, it it operates at a, a much more um, at the level of sincere human feeling more than his mm-hmm. previous two films. Uh, it's uh, very different in that way. It's yeah, you'll see. It's it's it's. Uh, it's complex and it's um, I've, I've forgotten what your actual question was well but no just you know. just about you know your approach with three oh. billboards um. because now you're saying it, you know complex it's the music sounds complex in this one well the music plays largely um, the character that's played by Fran McDormand um, and she operates in that film in two modes she is sometimes she's at war with the police in mm-hmm. that town um, and sometimes she's mom um, but uh, there's she has suffered this loss uh, even before the movie begins that that drives her to go to war with the police and that those are mainly the two themes there's the theme of her at war and the theme of that loss and um, uh, as the movie gets more and more um, you know expansive with its with its diet violence and darkness it's important that you that we established that that theme of loss just in the first few seconds of the film, mm-hmm. 
um, because that's really what motivates everything. But, you know, it goes so far off the rails uh, by the end that you, you could easily hear. It would be easy sometimes to forget that that's what it's really all about um, is her. And, uh, and you, you know, even when she goes pretty far off the rails, mm-hmm. you still you want to be sympathetic because um, of the loss she suffered as a mom. But also she's Fran McDormand and she's just a sympathetic, you know, uh, actor. You know, I mean, I, I've been such a fan of your work for decades. And, you know, going back to Mystery Alaska, still a beautiful score. And of course, Fur, an imaginary portrait of Diane Arbus, is mm-hmm. stunning. Thank you. So I'm curious, what is it, what speaks to you about with a project that will lure you in and get you involved, besides Todd Haynes picking up the phone? Well, you know, I mean, I, I love, like probably most people, I love doing something I haven't done before. So, um, uh, you know, that's, that's one thing um, that, that counts for something. If the film seems like it's either a different type of film or it's calling for a different type of music, um, then that's always good. And a lot of it, honestly, has to do with the director, you know. Um, I, you know I never would have done Twilight if it weren't that Catherine Hardwick called me. You know, I um, I'm not, don't have any abiding interest in teen romances, but... Uh, but Catherine, you know, she's a really interesting director, and she convinced me she was going to do something interesting with that film. So a lot of it has to do with the director as well. Mm-hmm. How long does it, does it take you, on average, like for Wonderstruck? How long does it take to complete a score? Well, that one is you'd, you'd think there'd be a simple answer to that, but there isn't. Um, on average, uh, it's you know. First, let me say the real question is how long will they give me? I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't control the schedule. They, I'm not going to ask you that one. Yeah, they tell me when it's due. So on average, they give me about six weeks. That's probably an average. Um, Wonderstruck, it was more because we knew it was a you know a gigantic job, and um, even after probably three months, uh, two or three months, um, maybe three months, we recorded it. But then the next week, Todd and I were still talking about, uh, you know, new ideas. And um, so when the film showed it in, at Cannes in May, it had, we'd actually removed some of the stuff we'd recorded and I'd written a few new things and just put them in with synthesizers for the Cannes screening. And then we we finally recorded those in um, August. So I, I can't even say, wow. you know, how long that took because it's been an ongoing thing. And I... I could safely say that if the movie didn't weren't opening this Friday, we would still be talking about it and and writing music. I'm sure. And the movie Wonderstruck did open the following day after I spoke with Carter. All three of his films are currently out now: Wonderstruck, Goodbye Christopher Robin, and Three Billboards. Three Billboards. I think Frances McDormand is a front runner for Oscar nomination uh, this year. She just picked up a Spirit Award nomination. Uh, on Tuesday, but I think she is our current front runner for Oscar. And Carter's competing against himself, but I have to say, now having heard more scores, I have to add Alexandre Desplat to my top three uh, for his score in The Shape of Water, which is, uh, there are no words to describe the magic and the majesty uh, of what uh, he has Alexander has created. So, you've heard for, on animation and skeletons and score. And now, now we're going to talk capitalism with the wonderful Jacob Cornbluth. Hi, Jacob. Hi. How are you? I am fine. I am so thrilled to have you back on Behind the Lens. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm just you know I fell in love with you and Bob back when we talked about inequality for all, uh, when we sat down at the SLS hotel and that documentary really changed me. It educated me on so many levels of things that I had a cursory idea about, but really dug in deep. You've been doing little video shorts the past few years, but now you give us saving capitalism based on Bob's, book of the same name another absolutely incredible incredible documentary that every american needs to see well thank you for saying that and it's interesting that you go back to uh inequality for all as 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 you know the beginning of our relationship but also 
as you introduce saving capitalism, because I think of it a little bit as um, one continuous mm. project uh, from that film to this film in terms of trying to put the issues of economic inequality and its consequences for not just our economy, but also our democracy um, front and center for um, for people to see and understand. So. And I think that's, um, I think you do that so well, and I, I agree with you that it is a continuation, because as as you know, it was so eloquently pointed out in Saving Capitalism, you know, Bob takes us all the way back to 1971 and that Powell memo, um, mm-hmm. which really ends up that that was like the first big linchpin in the House of Cards that has since unfolded. Yeah, I mean, there's one way to think about growing economic inequality as um, uh, a consequence of um, globalization and technological change, because our economy has become more global and technological change and the advent of machines replacing repetitive task work, like assembly line work, um, has changed the economy greatly. But um, what we really focus on in saving capitalism is the issue of, as economic inequality grows, so does inequality, so does power. The power Mm -hmm. that business has wielded to write the rules of the economic system since economic inequality started growing is as big of an issue as economic inequality itself. So in other words, economic inequality didn't just happen. It's not like the weather. It's a product of a series of rules of how the system works written over time that benefit the wealthy and hurt regular people. And until we understand that, the role that power plays um, in terms of controlling our democracy and our institutions and our economic system and the way all of this stuff is interconnected, we really can't discuss solutions. Mm-hmm. This is something we have to understand before we can um, you know, figure out how to fix it. Well, something that you and Bob point out in the film that I thought was Really, I mean, a very basic, simple concept when you look at it that whether you there is no such thing as deregulation. There's regulation, period. Some kind of regulation for things. Yeah, and there's no there's and there's no free market. Uh, So for so long, you see this debate, this false debate, really, that's been going on between conservatives arguing for a free market and and, uh, you know, those who would call themselves liberals arguing for more regulation, but you really just have a system. And the question is just who, who the rules of those systems of that system benefit and who they hurt. Mm-hmm. And there's, if, if you decrease regulation, for instance, uh, supposedly of the financial markets, well, then you have a different kind of government intervention in the form of bailouts for wall street when the system crashes. So you don't ever have a system that's devoid of rules. That would be, no, that, that just doesn't make any sense in a society of our scale. You just have a system of rules who benefit some and who hurt others. And understanding who they benefit and who they hurt is really what Saving Capitalism, the film, is all about. And, of course, I think it, you know, it, it really is expressed well through the idea of wealth. Wealth breeds political power, and that is what changes the rules, and not necessarily in a good way for the 90% out there. Absolutely. I think um, this question of the vicious cycle that our economy has been in for the last 40 years, where economic inequality grows, this creates more political power um, for the people who have the money, and this creates the ability to write the rules so that the economic system works better for them. This cycle is, um, is, 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 is a bad one for the economy. For the economy, and really, what we try to address in the film is that this isn't inevitable. That these are rules made by people, and once they were written to benefit the wealthy and the powerful, we can rewrite them to benefit the rest of us. On the one hand, but it's going to require a, a serious effort, some sort of a increasing awareness, possibly some sort of a, a, a change in the way we address the system to make it work. It's not a matter of coming up with a specific policy solution. I think, as Bob often says, policy solutions are plentiful. He has policy solutions to burn. Others have lots of good policy solutions. The real question is 
how we understand how the system works and people sort of rising up to uh, to push for positive social change. Mm-hmm. It is possible. We've done it before in American history. We've done it after the last Gilded Age of the 1890s. We did it uh, in the first progressive era that started around 1900, and we did it again in 1930s with the New Deal. But when capitalism goes off the rails, it requires a particular kind of effort, a particular kind of changing the way we understand how the system works um, so that we can mobilize collectively to uh, act as a kind of countervailing power to the money of interest that are now running the system. You know, what I find particularly interesting about the making of saving capitalism, when did you and Bob decide to make a documentary based on this book? Was that was that going in from the beginning when he was writing the book? Did the two of you figure, okay, this is going to be, this would make a good documentary? Because when you started filming, uh, we were in the 2016 election cycle with Jeb Bush and Hillary as front runners. So needless to say, <laughs> yeah, anything yeah. that you might have plotted and planned for the, as Bob referred to it, for inequality for all, the spine of the documentary, that yeah. had to go out the window. Oh, my goodness. I, I have to tell you just on a personal level what a challenge it was making this film because we did start making it in two, 2015, and Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush were the front runners. Um, it was kind of Bob's great insight in the book that uh, that he saw these two interconnected ideas. One of them was he saw that, broadly speaking, um, the economic system of left versus right that had dominated, you know, the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans wasn't really the coming story. It was going to be establishment versus anti-establishment, um, that when you have 90% of the people across the economic spectrum, the Tea Party conservatives and the bottom 90% and the, uh, the, the Bernie Sanders liberals on the, on the left, that these folks just were angry with the system that they thought was rigged and that wasn't working for them. And he saw that coming before it was the story of the presidential election cycle. So I thought when we set out to make the film that we were going to make a kind of uh, warning <laughs> a film about how the system was going to change next time, um, honestly. And we were surprised at how quickly it actually changed. And, you know, it was an amazing process making a film about something that you think is a scary future that is coming. And to see that happen while you're making, see that future, you know, become the present while you're making the film. Um, That changed everything in how we made the film and really caused me to kind of you know, go through a serious period of, you know, losing focus uh, about what I thought the film should be about. So it, this film now, I think, is, is more timely than ever. But mm-hmm. it was a really um, amazing process, uh, you know, yeah. making a film in one. Um, uh, I hope that I never have to go through again. <laughs> yeah, uh, for other directors who I, because, you know, we've got a lot of, of industry people that listen to the show and a lot of directors. You mentioned how you lost focus. How did you regain yeah. your focus and get yourself back on track? Well, to go back to your previous question, um, you asked how the film is generated mm-hmm. and um, or how it comes about as he, in his in Bob's writing process and in our collaboration. And I sort of had a feeling coming out of Inequality for All that there was a sense. Um, that I had that people felt that the economy was a bit like the weather, that it just sort of happened to them. And that when you have this growing economic inequality, that they felt sort of powerless to change it. And I thought this issue of power was, um, was central. And I wanted to make a film that sort of addressed that issue. And it turns out Bob was interested in the same, uh, in the same subject. Mm-hmm. Um, the way he came to it in saving capitalism is all his own. But we have meetings every week. We talk about videos, short videos that we're making on a weekly basis. And I think, you know, I hope that there's some sort of back and forth and collaboration about um, the ideas, you know, that we think are kind of most central to focus on. And I think, you know, in an interesting way, if I could say how I've maybe influenced Bob a bit, is that I think he started thinking about Saving Capitalism as a film at the same time he was thinking about it as a book. 
Um, and when he thinks about ideas now, he thinks about how can they be communicated visually in addition to if, you know, how he might write them down as sort of text. So um, that sort of is a collaboration that's sort of ongoing. Um, when you talk about focus and getting it back, um, that first principle of power, um, of how power to change the system and shape the system in ways that sort of benefit the many mm-hmm. and how the powerful have used power to shape the system to benefit the few. That basic core principle is the thing I kept coming back to. Even when I sort of lost focus and all of the Trump domination of the news cycle uh, made me think, you know, maybe this should be a a Trump movie in some way. Um, What I realized is if Trump wasn't there, there would have to be another Trump, that it's not about sort of Donald Trump or replacing him. It's about the underlying system that makes um, our political and economic system vulnerable to people like Donald Trump, and it's not about him in particular. So this is a film that sort of steps out and sort of takes the bigger picture Mm -hmm. of the question. You know, how did you go about uh, determining, because I know Bob is a great communicator, and he can, people that you think are so diametrically opposed to him, he can get them to talk in a jovial and an amicable way. You've got a variety of interview subjects here. You've got Annie Presley. Uh, you've got the young McDonald's worker, Guadalupe. You've got the uh, the Bentley Farmers. Um, you know, an interesting, and uh, then the young woman, Victoria, uh, suffering from cancer. You have four seminal interviews in here, individuals who were affected by, we have a farmer, you know, highly impacted by by the economic situation. We've got Guadalupe, who, she's an immigrant. She's here. She's working in a minimum wage job. Then we've got, we've got Victoria with the health crisis when she finds out that her insurance will not pay for all of her chemo drugs. So you have these hot-button topic subjects here. How did you go about narrowing it down to these individuals? Yeah, no, it's, and, and, and not just them. We also have... David Bratt, who yeah. is a um, the second most conservative member of Congress, uh, as rated by some service that rates such things. And he and Bob and, um, are they're they're on they're seeing eye to eye on so many things involving the economy. Yeah, no, it's 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 it was the initial idea with the film was as Bob went around on a book tour, um, we were going to see if we could have him interact with people who didn't necessarily agree with him. Uh, so often we're in our bubbles. Um, all of us are in our bubbles in social media or whatever uh, way we interact with the news. And we don't talk with people who don't agree with us uh, that much. And one of the central ideas in the book and in the film is that it's not about if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's about uh, if Broadly speaking, you're in the group of the economy for which um, you feel the political and economic system works, or if you're in the group that feels like it's rigged and it isn't working for you. And so we wanted to talk with people who, on its surface, might not agree with Bob, Mm -hmm. both from the left, some people who think capitalism isn't worth saving, but also from the the right, people who don't normally... um, you know, talk about just economic issues across the political spectrum. We wanted to put Bob in contact with them and just see what happened. Um, did they have anything in common? Did they have fights? Did they? Was there going to be a fist fight? Were they going to agree? I didn't, you know, we didn't know, and that was kind of the fun of making it. Um, and what we found is something kind of profound. I mean, I think um, that people have a way of connecting that, um, goes across the political spectrum if you can focus on that, if you can focus on uh, the right issues, on the economic issues. Um, you learn something about um, our differences and, and how we see things eye to eye sometimes that maybe you might not see in a traditional political film. Yeah, I mean, I think your selection, the individuals that you focused on, I think uh, really express the you capture and cover the, some of the main issues that 
is the commonality amongst everybody. And yeah. and I love the way you and your editors, you know, Sari Gilman and Catherine have put together the doc with spacing this out and the progression with the way you have de- you and Bob have designed this including I have to say you know I'm a huge 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 fan of the animation and the graphics and charts that you and Bob put in your films <laughs> well thank you I mean I think um, for inequality for all uh, it was I think the central idea with that film that we take a, a genuinely personal story uh, follow a character on a journey, just like you would in any narrative film. And then you try to use that as a jumping off point to discuss big ideas. And those big ideas could be, um, you know, conveyed through animations. They could be conveyed in a number of different ways. But that basic idea we try, you know, we sort of return to in Saving Capitalism. We follow Bob on a 40 or 50 year journey in his Mm -hmm. political odyssey. Um, What he's how it felt to him personally, and then we track how the economy and the uh, and the democracy has changed over that time as well. So, um, following those two points is really um, it, it's easier said than done, but it really is the kind of you know the, the basic ingredients to making um, both saving capitalism and inequality for all. And, of course, I think a lot of people may not realize that Bob actually interned for Robert F. Kennedy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he ran the, um, he ran the, uh, I think he ran the, uh, was it the signature machine? Mm. You know, when you, when you got a letter from Robert Kennedy, yeah. he would sign his name and Bob ran that machine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, um, so he, he truly, he has seen it all in his time. You know, from from RFK to the FTC to Clinton, um, you know, and everything in between and since. I mean, it's it's just amazing. And the fact that Bob can step back and look at things objectively and explain everything and you as a filmmaker can come in and also embrace that, understand it and explain it in tandem with him is so beneficial and it's something so desperately needed. And I'm so glad the two of you are filling that void. Well, thank you. Um, it's, it's, it really is an honor to work with him. Uh, and it's been now a, a long collaboration, an eight-year collaboration. But, um, you know, it's things like this that sort of keep you going. I think mm-hmm. for anybody who's been um, watching, this, uh, watching this system unravel, and has been trying to sound the alarm for as long as he has, and in a much shorter sense that I, you know, I have. Um, you feel it sometimes like you're um, screaming in the wind, you know, yeah. and and nobody's um, hearing it. So, um, you keep making the films, you keep talking about it if you're him, and you hope that people watch, and you hope that the darkest hour is just before the dawn, and that this is going to turn around. Well, you know, and following up on that, you know, in addition to the feature the feature documentaries, you've got your nonprofit with Bob Inequality Media, and mm-hmm. all of these little shorts that the two of you keep doing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's amazing. Just his energy level; he, he really does run me and all of us who work with him ragged. Are you having 71. trouble? <laughs> you having trouble keeping up with the man? <laughs> it's amazing his his uh his energy level um but yeah we've made um we make videos at least once a week these days and we put them out mostly uh on social media mm-hmm. and those videos have been seen over 250 million times over the last few years wow so the the audience for those is remarkable um and it really acts as a kind of laboratory for ideas that then we've put into both inequality for all and saving capitalism um, but you know, people are also they're 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 in their work day often, and they can watch like two or three minutes sure. about uh, why the Republican tax bill right now is so uh, crazy, and they can take that amount of time. They don't have the time always to watch a feature film. So um, what we try to do is use the feature films as the kind of giant bubbles in the in the pond that sort of I hope have a long life and. Um, people can watch them as they have time to kind of understand the big picture all at once. 
But, you know, the short videos act as a really important piece mm-hmm. to communicating the full story as well. Um, so I'm glad to be doing both. Well, I have to tell you, and you can pass this along to Bob, since I haven't gotten to talk to him about saving capitalism yet. Um, a couple years ago, actually when the whole election thing started, and Bob really started having a much bigger presence on social media, on Facebook, uh, between Hand Down Rather, local bar in Culver City that I go to, all of a sudden one day, three of us were sitting there looking at a, a video that Bob had done, a short little video. We had <laughs> didn't we didn't know each other, nothing, and at the same time we were all looking at one of Bob's videos, and it just opened up a whole dialogue. And how much it's amazing how many people look to Bob and respect him for the information he imparts. And the biggest thing everybody talks about is. You understand it when he explains it. Yeah, but no, I know it's, it's it's no. Go it's ahead. Really nice of you to say, and uh, and you know, I odds on directed that video because <laughs> I make all those those short ones. But um, I find that's his that's his that's why I gravitated to Bob in the first place as well. Um, I was trying to understand the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, and I felt the more news I watched and the more I uh, tried to understand it through the news, the more confused I got. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I really wanted to get it, uh, listening to Bob or reading Bob is really how I understood it best. Um, he really does have an amazing ability to break down these complex issues in a way you understand, and you really do feel like you get it when you hear him say it. Um, that's a gift, an amazing gift. And um and, uh, you know, I'm glad you had the same experience I did. Oh, but I just, you know, I find it very, because there are certain afternoons I can just pop in and inevitably, if one of us is there that now knows each other that, you know, we follow Bob <laughs> and we follow Dan Rather, it's like, hey, have you seen what Bob posted on Facebook today? And wow. So, you know, it's like silly little people like us. You know, just in in the middle of the day, what are we looking at? We are looking at Bob Reich videos and reading Dan Rather <laughs> news and guts. Uh, so, <laughs> which well, thank you. Which, <laughs> On behalf of him, thank you. Which you know, it's very funny because for our for our interview that we had done for Inequality for All, and we you and Bob and I talked about cynicism. And Bob said yeah. that in the interview, he goes, cynicism is dangerous because people throw up their hands and say it's not possible. Why should I even try? That's the end of the road. But, you know, he, is an, he believes we should all combat cynicism. And I love what you close out saving capitalism with, where you have Bob giving the three points of what you should do, what you can do to save capitalism, to essentially save democracy at this point be tenacious and patient mm-hmm. talk to people who disagree with you but have some fun yeah well um it, it's it's true i mean the the idea here is uh is it, this this economic situation we're in and the political economic situation we're in can be dark for a lot of people and the way bob and i initially connected was over a sense of humor um we <laughs> Uh, made each other laugh, and um, and that's one of the ways that he keeps going, and it's definitely one of the things we try to remember in our work, and I think it's important to anybody who is learning all of this dark information is, firstly, stay hopeful, don't, don't give in to cynicism, and try to laugh and have fun. Uh, and, the, you know, this is in some ways, you know, as Bob describes it, he's 71 years old and some of the darkest... Uh, times he can remember yeah. politically and economically. And I think that's really saying something for somebody who's been doing it as long as he has. Mm-hmm. But um, he still has a good time. We still have a good time working. Uh, so um, that's the only way to keep going. You know, you can't give in to the, to, to, to the desire to just, uh, you know, put your head under the covers and not go outside or not pay attention because then you give... You see the system, as you said, to to the wealthy people 
who are making the rules um, right now. So um, having a good time is important. <laughs> well, and of course, we all we all know about your sense of humor. Anybody that's seen Love and Taxes that you did with your brother Josh, um, yeah. I mean, that's just that's another whole avenue of the whole economic thing. But the two of you approach that in a comedic narrative. Um, Absolutely. You you are so ingrained in this in keeping us advised, apprised, and educated and enlightened on our economic situation on multiple fronts, Jacob. I can't, you know, I could talk to you forever about this, but unfortunately we are out of time. But very quickly, before I let you go, where else can people find your videos that you and Bob do other than Bob's social media accounts? Yeah, well, if you look up... uh Inequality Media, mm-hmm. either on, you know, just punch it in and it'll either come up as Facebook or on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos. That's that's the name of our nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also all show up on Robert Reich's uh, Facebook page um, fairly regularly. So I suggest everybody out there subscribe to that and uh, be appraised. It's a very informative uh, page and all of our videos are there as well. And then Saving Capitalism is on Netflix right now. And after everybody spends all their money on Black Friday and now today, Cyber Monday, they really should watch the the documentary. Absolutely. <laughs> Jacob, <laughs> Jacob, thank you so much. It is always such a joy to talk to you. And I love having you on the show. And I hope you'll come oh, back. Oh, what a pleasure. I thank hope you. you'll come back again. Absolutely. Whenever, uh, whenever you'll have me. <laughs> I will have you anytime, anytime. Jacob, thank you again, everybody. Saving Capitalism on Netflix now. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, Bye-bye. Great interview. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. We've got three or four guests already lined up for you. So, Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.